0: Our sermon this morning entitled, A Profile of the Grumbler, Profile of the Grumbler, our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. We'll look at various texts this morning, but we'll find a home base in this text, if you will, as we consider this subject together. So this morning, now, in our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, there in Romans, we have arrived at a new section of the book and a new emphasis for the apostle Paul. A Paul in Romans, in our place in Romans, has transitioned now from theological explanation in the first 11 chapters of that letter, to now a theological application, if you will, an application of that instruction in the last five chapters of the letter. There are many, many, many examples in the New Testament where Paul essentially follows that same pattern. So in consideration then of that pattern of Paul, in consideration of how the Christian should now live In light of all that we understand from the gospel, how the Christian should live, in light of all that we've understood from what Paul has taught us in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul now opens this new section in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, this new section in the book of Romans with an exhortation that leads to that theological application. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I plead with you. Paul is imploring us by the mercies of God, please. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what is Paul saying there? On On the foundation of God's mercy to us, on the bedrock of divine accomplishment through the person and work of God's own son, Paul says we are to present ourselves, our bodies, our faculties, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Present yourselves. Present the entirety of your person as a whole and continual burnt offering of sacrifice to God. Present your life to God as a burnt offering of sacrifice on the basis of God's mercy to us through Jesus Christ, on the basis of the mercies of God in the gospel. Entire Consecration to God is the only reasonable response of a biblically informed faith, right? Entire consecration to God is the only logical, the only rational expression of the gratitude that should characterize what Paul calls our living and holy and acceptable service of worship. There should be gratitude on the basis of God's mercy, to us through Jesus Christ entire consecration is only reasonable right then paul describes that living service of continual worship as broadly consisting of two responsibilities two responsibilities one do not be conformed do not continue to be pressed into the patterns that characterize this present evil age resist that immoral influence of this world that seeks to conform your thoughts and conform your actions in opposition to God's revealed will and instead be transformed. All right, be transformed. Give heed to the word of God. Allow the spirit of God through the word of God to renew your mind, to conform your thoughts, not to this world, but to conform your thoughts, beliefs, and actions in accord with God's revealed will. It's in this way alone that you will learn to discern what truly is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's by the Lord through his spirit working in that way that we learn to discern what is God's perfect will. So that in all your circumstances, in everything that you face, in every trial, in every difficulty, in every moment of suffering, In every circumstance, you might apply the word of God with wisdom and truly in every circumstance then present yourself to him in all your circumstances as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice of worship. We're to approach the Christian life that way. He is worthy of that sacrifice, amen? He's worthy of that response, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now think with me. Paul then, having called us to a living sacrifice in worship to God, having presented those two broad concerns that characterize that sacrifice, Paul then begins to teach within that antithetical framework that he's established. Right? Do not be conformed, but rather be transformed. He begins to teach in that framework, put off and put on. For example, verse 3, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Do not be wise in your own opinion, Paul would later say, but rather be content with God's providence concerning the measure of grace or the measure of faith that he's bestowed on you. That opens chapter 12, right? Put off and put on that antithetical framework. Verse nine, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Antithetical framework, right? Verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Paul is working through instruction now, applying those two broad concerns. Do not be conformed into the pattern of this evil age. Don't be pressed into its mold, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind and working within that antithetical antithetical framework, Paul now teaches practical application for the Christian life. Now, it's in consideration of Paul's emphasis then on practical application and in consideration of Paul's framework that antithetical framework in this section of Romans that I thought would be timely and helpful for us as the body of Christ, for us as the people of God, to take a brief exit off the Romans road, if you will, to uh, look at this framework that Paul has introduced. The plan that we have in this brief series will be to exit the highway, exit the Romans road for a period of time to take in scenery, if you will, instead of flying by, like seeing subjects fly by as we're driving down the road, We need to take in those subjects. We need to understand them. We need to get up close. We need to grab some pictures, and we'll get back in the car and get back on the highway, okay? That's the plan. As we do that, as we take the exit and take in the scenery, we're going to follow Paul's antithetical framework. We're going to look at various profiles. For example, we'll consider the bitter man and the forgiving man, right? We'll consider the contentious man, and we'll consider the peacemaker. We'll consider the haughty and the humble, and so on. We'll look at several profiles in that way. We're going to draw out several of these profiles in the weeks to come, and then we'll get back to Romans 12, okay? And we'll continue to add We'll continue to add to these profiles in the years to come as we find opportunity to do that. I think that'll be really helpful for us as we consider practical application of the gospel in our Christian lives. Now, we're going to begin those profiles this morning with a profile of the grumbler. And we're gonna follow that profile with a profile of the grateful, right? That's coming. But let's consider this morning together a profile of the grumbler. When Paul admonishes the believer in Romans chapter 12, verse two, to stop being pressed into the pattern of this evil age, he has in his mind the thinking, the character, or the conduct that typifies this age. Now, if you think about the the present evil age in which we live, I think you can imagine with me the type of character, the type of conduct, the type of thinking that typifies this evil age in which we live. There is a pattern of thinking that's exemplified by this evil age. There is a pattern of conduct that is entirely consistent with this evil age, making it entirely inconsistent with that age which is to come. That which is typical of this age is entirely inconsistent with what will characterize the age to come. The character and conduct of this evil age is marked by unrighteousness. The character and conduct of that age will be marked by righteousness. The character and conduct of this age is the character and conduct exemplified by our three enemies, the three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. John says, all that is in the world The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the father, it's of the world. In other words, the pattern of this evil age is evident in the thoughts, the desires, the values, the beliefs, the affections, the attitudes, the convictions, the conduct of those who are the children or the fruit of this evil age. Those patterns are evident in the products of this age, do you see? So Paul then is exhorting, in Romans chapter 12, he's exhorting believers, listen, stop being influenced by that pattern. Stop being influenced by those thoughts, that thinking, those ideologies, those values, those desires, those attitudes, those affections, those convictions. Stop being influenced by this evil age. It is exerting constant pressure on you. It is exerting constant force on you, and you and I, we must stand opposed to that influence, stand opposed to that force. Now, all of that said, it is difficult to imagine anyone who exemplifies the spirit of this evil age more so than the grumbler, right? Now, it'd be tempting, it'd be really tempting to open up this subject this morning by complaining about all the complaining. It goes on. Right? It'd be really tempting to do that. There's a lot of complaining uh, that goes on. Turn on the news, complaining, 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 turn off the news, right? It's like just constant complaining. This age is marked by a grumbling spirit. It is marked by a grumbling spirit. That is no mystery to us. We've experienced, brothers and sisters, you and I have experienced the bitter fruit of grumbling and complaining in our own church. This age, the entirety of this age, marked, those in the flesh, marked by a grumbling spirit. However, as we think about those things, it's the grumbling and complaining in my own heart that I have to be concerned with, right? It's my own complaining that I have to be concerned with. God has given me responsibility to be concerned with my own grumbling and complaining heart. God has given you responsibility to be concerned about the grumbling and the complaining that you find in your own heart. It's our responsibility to resist the pattern. It's our responsibility to resist those forces that influence us, shaping us into the mold of this present age. It is is eleven. It is a leaven, and if you allow it, it will leaven the whole lump. It is a poison. It is a poison that corrupts. It is a poison that pollutes. And as long as you don't stand opposed to it, it will continue to pollute. It will continue to corrupt. So what does the Bible then have to say to me about my grumbling and complaining? I hope you'll find something in there for you also, okay? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now, I find it very interesting. In this section of the letter... Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is dealing with dangers that arise from within the church. When we consider as a, tur- a church, the dangers that we face, they are manifold. They are manifold. And here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is dealing with, he's confronting, he's concerned about dangers that approach, that are are arising against the church, and in particular, from within the church. He's dealt with dangers that have arisen outside the church, persecution from outside. He's concerned now with dangers that arise from within. In chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 Paul commands believers in the church at Philippi to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the two marks that distinguish that conduct in Philippians chapter one are one, that they stand fast in one spirit, one mind, as they labor together with the gospel in the direction that they go, in the aim of the church, the mission of the church, that they labor together with one mind in that work, And two, that they stand fast in one spirit, one mind, without fearing those who oppose them. Those two aims, those two marks. Now, considering that the dangers that they face as a church, Paul in Philippians chapter two now is calling the church to unity. It's interesting. Considering the danger that they face, Paul calls the church to unity. Look at verse one. Therefore, Paul says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if you've experienced any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection, any mercy, in other words, if you've tasted of these heavenly realities, if these spiritual, if this spiritual blessedness is true of you in any measure, then founded upon the mercies of God, grounded in all that is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Verse two, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. This is a plea for unity in the Lord's church. Notice it's not a rebuke, right? This is not a rebuke. Paul is pleading with them. He's not correcting them. He's pleading with them. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the division has not yet taken place. Division hasn't yet taken place. What is Paul doing? Paul is warning them what to do and how to avoid it. He's pleading with them to avoid it. Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind and humility, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Fulfill my joy, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. How do we do it? Don't do anything through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, lowliness of mind, esteem your brother better than yourself. Look out not only for your own interests, look out for the interests of others. So the Philippians have to stand together against their adversaries, but they have to do that first by standing together in heart and mind with one another by being of one mind with one another. The person being conformed or pressed into the mold of this evil present age is a person focused on himself, is a person that is turned inward upon himself. When he gets what he wants, he's happy. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he ain't, right? He's turned on himself. That's our default condition. That, mind you, that's our default condition. We have to strive, we have to labor Against that, we have to oppose it. We have to resist it. That is our default attitude to turn ourselves in, inward on ourselves. Now, the supreme example, the supreme example that we have as a church that stands opposed to that example of this age, that stands opposed to the pattern of this age, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Rather than living for Himself, Jesus Christ is the perfect example the supreme example of someone who did not live for himself, but rather gave everything of himself for us. He is the the supreme example of self-denial, the supreme example of sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself in death as our substitute. He gave himself for us. Having loved his own who are in in this world, John records, John 13, He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of himself, even. He loved them with all that he is and has. So then, verse five, with that example in mind, then, how are we to esteem another better than ourselves? How are we to not only look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others? Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something that he had to grasp for. He was in, he is God the Son. Verse seven, but being in that position, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If Christ is our example. And Christ obeyed to the point of death, then brothers and sisters, that means that you and I are being exhorted to obey even when it's difficult. Christ is our example. He is the supreme example. We're to obey even when it's difficult. We're to obey especially when it's difficult, especially, especially when we want our own way, especially when I want to esteem myself more highly than my brothers. We are called to follow after his example. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Verse nine, therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, considering what Jesus Christ has done for us, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling by obeying even when it's difficult, by looking out for the interests of others, by esteeming others more highly than yourself, not by turning inward on yourself, asserting your desires above others, but loving one another as Jesus Christ has loved you. Four, verse 13, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, it's in this context It's in the context of calling the church to unity. It's in the context of calling the church to conduct, chapter one, verse 27, that is worthy of the gospel that Paul says in verse 14, do all things without complaining, without disputing. That's the context for Paul's command. Now, why, think with me, why does Paul give this command Do all things, all things, without complaining, without disputing. Why does Paul give this command in this context? Let me give you four reasons, four reasons. First, has to do with Christian service. It's because, brothers and sisters, we live and we labor and we serve in a church made up of many members. That's going to be Paul's point in Romans chapter 12 when we get back there. And every single one of those members is a recovering sinner. That's me and that's you. We're a bunch of sinners living under the same roof, taking up the same airspace. And we're to be employed in in the same mission. We're to be of one mind, of one spirit, one faith, of one accord. And when we're all striving, when we're all laboring, when we're all serving, attempting to obey the Lord in difficult and trying circumstances, all of us, at various degrees of spiritual growth, all of us at various degrees of of spiritual maturity or spiritual experience, all of us with varying preferences, varying scruples, various convictions, considering what would naturally be an atmosphere of disunity in that kind of situation, we're not only tempted, we are prone to grumble and complain. That's why he gives that command In this context, commanding the church, calling the church to unity. Second, there's another reason why Paul would give this command in this context, and that's because complaining and disputing are unity killers. They are unity killers. Complaining and disputing over your complaints will destroy a marriage, it'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy a home. It'll destroy your relationships. Complaining will destroy a church. Complaining will destroy a soul. Third, complaining is entirely inconsistent with the example of Jesus Christ the example that he has set for his people and complaining will ruin the witness of the Lord's church in this world. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in the midst of this evil present age among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And notice also there at verse 16, grumbling or complaining is a step on the path to apostasy. Right, Do all things without complaining, without disputing, so that you may hold fast the word of life. So complaining, not only will it destroy a marriage, destroy a home, destroy a relationship, destroy a church, complaining will also destroy your soul, okay? Paul refers... To two Greek words in verse 14. The first is uh, It's translated as complaining. It's considered an onomatopoeia. So, what that is, where a word uh, sounds like what it is, it refers to murmuring, ganguzmos, under your breath, complaining under your breath, right? It, it's The word sounds like what it is. The second word is dialogizmas, It's translated as disputing. The first word, Guzmas, refers to being displeased. Literally, it's an expression of displeasure. It's expressing displeasure. The second word refers to what you sinfully do with that displeasure. You are displeased, and so you, dieleguizmas, you, you, you uh, dispute. The word conveys a sense of expressing doubt, of expressing suspicion of advancing your own opinion on the basis of that doubt, that suspicion, that thinking, or arguing on the basis of that doubt, suspicion, thinking, or disputing, okay? Now, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, Uh, I'm not complaining, I'm just stating the truth. Maybe you've said that, right? Uh, I'm not complaining, I'm just telling the truth. Uh, The statement itself if that's true, and you actually are, if you actually are telling the truth, and you need to be certain that you are, um, if that is the case, the statement itself is not the issue. The statement itself is not the issue. It's what is attached to that statement that is the issue, right? With complaining, with disputing, a statement in and of itself, a statement of truth is not the issue. It's what you do with that statement. It's what you attach to that statement that is the problem. And what does the complainer Attached to his statement, he attaches displeasure. That's what the word complaining refers to. That's what the word complaining means. What does a complainer, what does the grumbler do with his complaint? He disputes. He expresses doubt. He expresses suspicion. He argues. He becomes contentious. He complains. He Disputes, right? It's not the statement of truth. If it is a statement of truth, it is what you attach to that statement that becomes complaining. And what the complainer attaches, what the grumbler does, is he attaches his own displeasure. Now, there are many circumstances in which we may express displeasure that is not sinful. And we're going to talk about those. We're not going to finish up today. This is part one. We'll have to finish up in the week to come. However, we're going to talk about those ways in which we are to express displeasure biblically or faithfully. Many circumstances in which you express displeasure are not necessarily sinful. There is a faithful, maybe even a better way to say it is that there is a faith-filled way of expressing displeasure, and the Bible is replete with those expressions, right? The Bible often refers to that as a lament, as a lament. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, a text that we looked at together. We groan, in this tent, don't we? Sometimes, maybe not you young people. I groan in this tent, right? We groan, Romans 8:23. We groan within ourselves, grieved by the flesh, eagerly awaiting, longing for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's not a faithless dissatisfaction. That's not a that's not a sinful grumbling or groaning or complaining. That isn't a complaint against the sovereignty of God. That's not a complaint against the providence of God. That is a faith-filled displeasure with my condition as a sinner. We long for the fullness of what God has promised. We long to be set free from the confines of this fallen world. We await the freedom, the liberty of the sons of God. That's not a faithless lament. That's a faith-filled lament. God, bring it right? We long for that. We long for your promises to be fulfilled. An honest lament reflects the groaning of a Christian in response to living in a fallen world. That's an honest, biblical, faithful, faith-filled lament. You often hear that kind of anguish in the words of the psalmists. Those psalms are a grace of God, a mercy of God to encourage us in our difficulty. Why? Because they teach us, they instruct us how to bring our displeasure, bring our lament, bring our anguish, bring our suffering to God. God knows that the difficulty that we face is real. God knows how we feel about it. He knows that the pain is real. He knows that the heartache is real. He knows that the, the difficulty, the suffering is hard. And God, in compassion, teaches us how we are to bring our lament before him. We're to express that anguish to him. We're to express that in prayer. We often do that, brothers and sisters, in the hymns that we sing, don't we? Teaching one another, admonishing one another in hymn songs and spiritual songs. The the Israelites would do that in the psalms that they would sing. Those psalms uh, as they pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would sing together. They would sing their laments, their anguish before God with faith toward God, with love toward God for his loving kindness and his compassion toward them in their their difficulty, in their misery. So scripture itself, the Psalms in particular, show us how we are to express how we feel to God. We need to take instruction from that. We We don't need to do that in a sinful way, in a faithless way. The Psalms, the scriptures, teach us how to express our displeasure in a way that honors God, that does not dishonor him, honors him as God. And we need to carefully consider it how it is that we do that. We need to be careful that we're not complaining and grumbling against God himself. However, however, the complaining that Paul has in mind here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, is an expression of our displeasure that does not honor God. That's what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter two. Not that lament of anguish associated with living in a fallen world. This is complaining that does not honor God. This is grumbling that is against God. The vast majority of our complaining, the vast majority of our complaining is overtly evil. It is overtly evil. And the Bible often characterizes that kind of complaining as grumbling, as grumbling. Now, that kind of complaining, that grumbling has an object, has an object. The grumbler often has a person, has a person, as the object of his displeasure. That person didn't meet my expectations. That person, that circumstance isn't what I expected, you may think that the grumbler has as his object a person or a circumstance, but I want to explain to you why that circumstance is not only a circumstance, he has as his object a person who is sovereign over that circumstance. That make sense? The grumbler has an object. It's not just the statement. It's what is attached to that statement, namely the displeasure of the grumbler, And the grumbler, having attached that displeasure, has an object of his displeasure. That person didn't meet my expectations. That circumstance didn't work out the way that I think that it should. Your pleasure, your desires, your expectations, your way of thinking, your opinions, your preferences, your ideas, your thoughts become the benchmark or the standard of what you say is just or unjust. Your desires, your pleasure becomes the standard or becomes the benchmark. Things should be the way that I think they should be. Things should be the way that I want them to be. Now, that that displeasure is then expressed in your thoughts. You express displeasure. You complain. You grumble in your thoughts. You have statement of your circumstance. To that, you have attached your displeasure... And now with your grumbling, you're grumbling and complaining in your thoughts against an object. That Those thoughts are accompanied by a sinful heart attitude, often like anger. We, can, we call it sometimes frustration. There's a biblical word for it. It's called anger, right? I'm just frustrated. You're angry. Yeah. Uh, we attach pride. That's prideful to think that things should work out the way that we think that they should. I What you're saying is, I should be treated better than this. I am entitled. I deserve better. This is not how I think things should be done. What are you doing? You are grumbling in your heart. You're taking a statement of fact. You're attaching displeasure. You are directing it toward an object, and you are now grumbling in your thoughts, in your heart. I deserve better. This is not how I think things should go. Or that displeasure, that grumbling slips the confines of your heart and mind and it is loosed through the open portal of your tongue. And you grumble and you complain with your words. Not just in your thoughts now, not just in your heart, but now you're grumbling and complaining with your words. Grumbling and complaining words are critical words. They're often gossip. They are often slander. They produce strife. They produce contention. They produce discord. They produce division. They produce bitter fruit, not only in your own heart, but also outwardly as that leavens and defiles. The remedy, brothers and sisters, the remedy is to look at that situation, that circumstance, that original statement, if you will, with gratitude. There are many ways in which to remedy this evil in our own hearts and minds, but to look at that circumstance with gratitude. Oh, it's raining! I hate getting wet. <laughs> we'll complain about anything. Or we will complain about the weather rather than, oh, praise God, like, praise God. When 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 Paul says that God does good, that He makes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust, that's not God bringing judgment upon the just and the unjust. He's making it rain on the. <laughs> no, that's God being good. <laughs> That's God being good. We can be grateful, right? The the remedy is gratitude. The remedy is understanding, biblical understanding, biblical wisdom. We'll talk about that soon. But whether confined to your mind or spewing forth from that unruly member in your mouth, James says, grumbling or complaining is an expression of your displeasure. At its root, grumbling or complaining is an expression of your displeasure. You've made a judgment. And you've made a judgment about a person. And not just made a judgment about a person, you've made a judgment against a person. Whether you would characterize it that way or not, that's the reality of the circumstance. You've made a judgment against a person. You've made a judgment, you might think, about a circumstance. But it's not only a judgment about a circumstance. We don't live in a world of chance. Chance is not real. We serve a God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. You're not making a judgment about your circumstance. You're making a judgment about God. That person or that circumstance, our God, does not measure up to your standard, to your expectations, and so you grumble, and so you complain. You're not pleased. You're not pleased with your spouse, and so you complain against him. That's what complaining is. It is against them. You're not pleased with your kids, and so you grumble against them. You're not pleased with your boss. So you complain and you dispute. You're not pleased with the weather. And so you're not complaining against the weather. You're complaining against God. You're not pleased with your church. And so you grumble and you complain against your church. You're not pleased with your elders. James 4, James says, who are you to judge your brother? Who are we to judge one another in that way? we're not the lawgiver, we're not the judge. We're not to sinfully attach that kind of displeasure and then target our displeasure at our brother in that way, making an unjust judgment. You're not pleased with life. This is how I think things should have been done. This is the direction I think we should go. This is how I should have been treated. All of that, every single bit of it is grumbling and griping and complaining. And that grumbling, griping, and complaining may have an earthly object, but it ultimately has a heavenly object. (laughs) It ultimately has God as its object. That complaining leavens your heart and mind. There is a path to apostasy. There is a path. Uh, to becoming the grumbler. And it's a path filled with grumbling and complaining. It starts off with a complaint and ends with many, right? There is a path. Complaining leavens. Complaining spreads like a contagion. We're going to look at that next week when we look at the example of the Israelites. That complaining leavened Israel. It cultivates a critical spirit. Complaining will cultivate within your heart and mind a legal temper. Complaining turns friends into adversaries. That whispering, that murmuring, that gonguzo, that makes enemies out of friends, separates the best of friends, Solomon says, right? It leads to disputing. That disputing, disputing breeds strife, breeds contention, breeds a factious spirit. The seeds of that division being originally planted by your complaints, by my complaints. When we look at divisions between brothers, when we look at discord in the body, often has as its root this evil seed of bitterness and complaining. It starts there. And for that reason, God hates complaining. God hates grumbling. God hates the one who sows discord among the brethren. When you act in that way, you're acting as one whom God hates. We, brothers and sisters, are called to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We've been called to a life that adorns the gospel, that is not pressed into the mold of this present evil age. We have to resist in our own lives. We have to resist the temptation to complain. However, Although your displeasure appears to be focused on a person or a circumstance, grumbling and complaining ultimately places God in the crosshairs of your displeasure. With his thoughts, with his words, with his actions, the grumbler either explicitly or implicitly, either directly or indirectly, declares that God himself has failed him failed to please him. He declares that God himself is not sufficiently good, that God himself is not sufficiently wise, that God is not faithful, that God is not loving. He essentially declares, announces, that he would do things differently if he were God. (laughs) He does not accept the decreed will of God concerning him. He does not accept the providence of God that has been displayed in his circumstances. He does not accept it. And he places himself as judge over his circumstances, as judge in the place of God, as judge over what is just and what is unjust. Lamentations 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both woe and well-being proceed? Do not your circumstances, are they not ordained by God? My days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being both proceed? Why then should a living man complain? Good question. Why should a living man complain? A man complain for the punishment of his sins. In other words, God, in his fatherly love for us, in his fatherly care for us, determines to show us loving kindness by chastening us, by disciplining us. What father who loves a son doesn't discipline him? And God, who is our heavenly father, who loves us more than any earthly father could, our God with loving kindness determines to do us good by chastening us. Why will we complain about that? I'm preaching to the choir. I do it. We are prone to this. There is this, this, this flesh, this desire, this will within us to live as practical atheists in our circumstances and to grumble and complain against God who has fashioned those for our good. Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways. I pray that I was just complaining there, right? Um, how can I look at that circumstance with gratitude? I need to see that circumstance the way that God does. God intends to do me good. God has promised. He is working all things together for my good. I'm not going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. God has withheld this good from me and I'm going to take it from it. Help me to have a right attitude about this, Lord. Help me to look at this circumstance with wisdom. Help me to see your goodness in it. Help me to respond with grace on my lips, not bitterness and complaining on my lips. How many look at my brothers and sisters with grace and with mercy, with forgiveness, not with complaints against them, with grumbling against them. He says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. That complaint is a turning away from God. And let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven, who is sovereign over all our circumstances. So in addition to disrupting Christian service, in addition to destroying Christian unity, in addition to discrediting a Christian witness, the fourth reason that Paul gives this command against grumbling and complaining and disputing in the context of Philippians chapter 2 is because grumbling and complaining is ultimately an attack on the sovereignty of God. It's ultimately an attack on God. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, verse 14, do all things then without complaining and without disputing. In other words, God is sovereign in our sanctification. He's sovereign. God is sovereign in every one of our circumstances, in every moment. Complaining then is an assault on the sovereignty of God. Every complaint is ultimately directed against the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Every complaint is ultimately directed against the one who promises that he is working all things after, uh, together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, Paul commands, do all things. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He promises to work all things together for our good. So you and I do all things without complaining and disputing. This is, this is one way in which this present evil age seeks us, seeks to conform us into the pattern, the shape of its own mold. Here's the way. We think that our circumstances are the products of chance. We think that the things that we face are arbitrary. The butterfly effect, right? This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and this happens. And it all comes falling down on my shoulders. How unfair is all of that, right? We, this world wants you thinking like an atheist. There is no such thing as chance. It's a fiction. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Brothers and sisters, we are then to do all things, coram deo, before the eyes of God, in his sight as the one who is, determined all of our circumstances, and we are to respond in our circumstances with faith in him, trust in him. He has done us good, and he will do us good. He promises to do us good. He has not withheld any good thing from us. We live like practical atheists when we complain, when we grumble. Jeremiah Burroughs said, complaining is the most repulsive state of being. (laughs) And Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a lot about sin. (laughs) A lot about sin. I was looking through uh, Jeremiah's book, Jeremiah Burroughs' book, uh, The Evil of Evils, uh, here not too long ago, and uh, looking through the table of contents for a particular subject that he addresses in that book, and it just goes on and on, and he's a good Puritan. (laughs) It's uh, 52 Points about the evil, right? Uh, Just keep the evils of the evil of evils uh, about sin. And Jeremiah Burroughs says that complaining is the most repulsive state of being. He says, as contentment reveals much grace in the soul, strong grace, beautiful grace, so murmuring or complaining reveals much corruption, strong corruption. Vile corruption in your heart, complaining, grumbling, complaining or grumbling, which is attaching to your circumstance, a statement, attaching your displeasure, directing that against an object, namely a person, ultimately God, and then with thoughts or words, grumbling and murmuring against them. Burroughs says that is strong, vile, that reveals corruption in your heart. That reveals the seeds of corruption. We have to stamp out that corruption. We can't do that in ourselves. Can you control your tongue in your own power? It's an unruly evil. It's an unruly evil. We need the spirit of God. We need grace. We need mercy. For that, we turn to him. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Let us return to him and he will give us grace in our time of need. He is the one who works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. We must turn back to him. We must think his thoughts after him. We we need to see our life, our circumstances, ourselves from his perspective. Why would Burroughs think of complaining in this way? Because when we complain, we are saying, I deserve better, and God is not good. It's the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. God has withheld something good from me, and it is a deadly poison to think that way. More about that next week. So, brothers and sisters, what are we to do? Think with me for a moment about the circumstances that tempt you to complain. to dispute. Think about those circumstances. Think about that person. Paul would instruct us not to look there, but to look to the example of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter three, verse one, listen to this. I'll read this in closing. If then you were raised with Christ, there's a similarity between this text and the one in Philippians chapter two, isn't there? We hear the same kind of language. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. That's where your heart needs to be. That's where your eyes need to be. That's where your thoughts need to be. Verse two, set your mind on things above. Don't let your mind dwell, wallow, flounder with the things that are on this earth. Verse three, for you died to sin and to self in him. You died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, therefore, do not be shaped to the pattern, conformed to the pattern of this evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore, verse five, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put off, Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked. You used to walk in those things when you lived in them. But now, Paul says, put on. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put, uh, now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Unity. Therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, what are we to do? What are we to do to overcome in the power of the Spirit, independence upon God, independence upon the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, what are we to do? As the elect of God, holy and beloved, we are to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Can you hear any of that in complaining? When you hear grumbling, when you hear disputing, do you hear kindness? Do you hear mercies? Do you hear do you hear tenderness? Do you hear humility? Do you hear meekness? Do you hear patience and long suffering? Is that what you hear when you hear complaining? Or do you hear exactly the opposite of that? When you hear grumbling and disputing, when you hear grumbling and complaining, you hear the opposite of those things. What are we to do? What are we to do? Listen, you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know grumbling and complaining by its fruits. See if it doesn't carry these characteristics. If it doesn't carry these characteristics, there's something wrong with it. It's sin. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, don't grumble and complain, but put on the opposite of that grumbling and complain. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, long-suffering, bearing with one another, Paul says, And forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, that's what a complaint is. It's a complaint against another. Ultimately, it's against God. But if anyone has a complaint, you're displeased with another. Even as Christ forgave you, you so, you also, you also must do forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you so you also must do it's a tall order isn't it and we have uh, much to be grateful for we have no business no business grumbling or complaining we have to brothers and sisters unite together have to cultivate gratitude and we have to cultivate not only a discernment that pertains to grumbling and complaining, that pertains to disputing, so that we know what it looks like, we know what it sounds like, we know what it smells like, right? But we have to cultivate in ourselves its opposite. We have to cultivate within ourselves a continual hard attitude, continual speaking in conformity with that hard attitude, continual conduct in conformity with that heart attitude that reflects tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiveness. We have to stop being pressed into the mold of this grumbling, evil age. And we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Allow God by His Spirit, through His Word, to instruct us and to transform us and to renew us and put on those things with which God is well-pleased, those things which are a good and holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we see your instruction here in your word, your revealed word to us. And we can also see the sin that lies within our own flesh, the temptation to grumble and complain, against our brothers and sisters, against our circumstances, thinking that all that complaining is against our brothers and sisters or our circumstances, when in reality, it's complaining and grumbling against you. Convict us of our sin, Lord, please. Um, Let us not treat this like a quote-unquote respectable sin, but help us to see it and to treat it as the vile corruption of heart that it is, that we might walk before you holy, acceptable, that we might learn to discern in our circumstances uh, that which is your good and holy and perfect and acceptable will, and that we may honor you with our lives, walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, walk worthy of the gospel for your glory. We praise and we thank you for the strength that your spirit supplies to help us to do this. We thank you for the wisdom applied by the spirit in your word supplies, that we might know and understand these things, help us, Lord, strengthen us, conform us in Christ's image, grow us, mature us, help us to be mature Christians in these things, so that we might glorify you, live grateful lives for all that you might force in the gospel. May our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed, and you be glorified with all things in Jesus' name.